Hey, this is Felix. We have an amazing show on banking for you this week, but it was recorded before Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank all collapsed and precipitated the biggest banking crisis in over a decade. So that, I'm afraid, is going to have to wait until next week. For this week, though, we do have some great stuff. Hello, and welcome to the bank special episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we are going to talk all about banks and banking this week. It is a fascinating subject we don't spend enough time on. One of the reasons we don't spend enough time on it is that we don't have a huge amount of expertise on it, but this week we have a special guest who does, Mr. Kevin Wack. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Felix. Kevin, introduce yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm the national editor at American Banker, which is an industry publication that covers the U.S. banking industry. You are going to talk all about banking to us, retail banking, the misadventures of Goldman Sachs. We have a Slate Plus segment on the asset side of banks' balance sheets and what happens in a rising interest rate environment, all manner of sexy stuff. And especially, we are going to talk about your incredible five-part series about Wells Fargo and all of the insane stuff that went sideways in Wells Fargo with the fake account scandal. It's a great episode. Stay tuned. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Kevin, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Felix. It's it's great to have you. And you, we are just going to devote this entire segment to banks, which for a money podcast, I feel like we don't really talk about good old-fashioned retail banking. Everyone who listens to this podcast, I'm going to just come out and say, with like maybe like five exceptions, has a bank account. They're probably a bit annoyed at their bank account. Very few people love their bank. Um, and it's just a facts of life that people don't talk about probably as much as they should on money podcasts. We are going to rectify that right here. Um, and I think the the first big question I want to ask you is like, as an industry, how how is it? How is the retail banking industry doing right now? It's it's doing okay. It's doing fine. Banking is usually doing pretty well, right? <laughs> and this isn't really a huge exception. I think 
coming out of the pandemic, there there are sort of rising concerns about credit, but n- no one seems to be in panic mode. And then I guess one sort of unique thing or interesting thing from my perspective, I've been covering banking for about 12 years. And for that entire time, really, um, deposits have been sort of seen as irrelevant or not really a, an important story in banking. And I think that's finally starting to change right now with interest rates rising. So that's, yeah, that's something I really am fascinated by, which is this idea that for the past 12 years, we basically were in this world of zero interest rates. And so banks kind of didn't like deposits because they're, you know, checking accounts and deposits, they're like, they're quite expensive to maintain. And interest rates are zero. So if you need to borrow money, you can borrow money at zero anyway. You don't need to borrow money at zero from depositors. Nowadays, everything has changed. Interest rates are very high. And deposits are the one place where banks can borrow money at zero. Um, They're the only place where banks can borrow money at zero. They can go along to depositors, say, open up a checking account or even a savings account. A lot of savings accounts are still paying like 0.1% interest. And and that's effectively the borrowing rate that banks are paying to borrow that money. And suddenly, that looks like free money that they can then turn around and just lend to the government at 5% and make a nice hefty profit. That's right. There is starting to be some pressure on um, deposit costs for banks. Um, it's happening a little bit more quickly than I think banks expected, actually. But your big point about how most deposits are priced very cheaply still is is absolutely true. You really have to work to as a as a consumer retail banking customer. You really have to work a little bit to to get a, a more attractive rate, and uh, so banks are definitely in a mode of competing now to keep those cheap deposits. So if they're competing to keep deposits, but they also don't want to pay really high interest rates to customers, how does that manifest in what they're doing? You, sh- you shared with us one really interesting piece that said banks are charging higher rates to people, savers, in places where they don't have a f- brick and mortar branch. Like if you want to put your money with Citibank, you can get like a 4% rate on your account, provided you don't live near a Citibank branch. Is that like part of the new calculus they're thinking about? Yeah, I think I think banks are testing different things out to see sort of what they can get away with. Um, this is this is one thing that I hadn't seen previously. They're, they're trying to avoid uh, sort of cannibalizing their existing uh, really cheap deposits. Um, the, the really low rates that they pay to most people. So um, a few big banks have recently said, okay, we'll offer, if you open an online savings account, we'll offer you somewhere in the range of 4%. But the caveat, the big caveat to it is you can't live anywhere near a branch of ours. If you do, you get 0.01 or 0.03%. Which, which like, if I'm, if I'm a Citibank customer who's like been banking with my local Citibank branch for the past 20 years, this is going to royally piss me off, right? Yes. I'm like, I am your most loyal customer. You're offering me 0.1%. And these Johnny-come-latelys in the middle of Iowa who like, have no relationship at all, they get 4% and that's off limits to me? Like, How is this good in terms of customer relations? Well, I mean, how many, how many people who are Citibank customers know about this? 
Oh, they're going to find out. <laughs> I'm going to tell them. They listen to Slate Money. This is the genius of geo-targeted advertising and marketing, right? They send out all of the, you know, the the direct mailers and the online pop-up ads only to people who live in, you know, the Midwest and mm. where they don't have any presence. And those of us who live in New York just never even see that this product exists. That's right. It's pretty outrageous, isn't it? Kevin, do you think this is like scandalous or do you think it's just funny? Well, I think it's, I do think, <laughs> I think it's a little bit scandalous. I, I, when we wrote about this recently and I wanted to know, you know, is there any regulatory concern here? I mean, I, I, I think there's probably not. Since we published the story about it, we certainly haven't heard anything about a, a regulatory angle to it. I think it's purely a PR issue. And, you know, maybe this segment will bring a little bit more attention <laughs> to, to the issue. But but I don't think it's really going to blow up as a scandal, even if it maybe should. What, what are some other things that people are doing to sort of avoid this problem of cannibalization that you're talking about? Yeah, this is a little bit, probably a little bit less controversial. But the other thing we've noticed is uh, offering for, again, for online savings accounts, offering only the higher rate for new customers. So if you're an existing customer who has an online account with one of these banks, I don't think it's the big banks that have been doing this, but some of the online banks offer a higher rate to a new customer. I think it's in the guise of, you know, this is a new a new product, a new account that's offering this higher rate. So if you're in the old account, you, you're stuck in the lower rate, you would have to proactively go open a new account. That's like my time subscription. It is exactly. Once you're locked yes. in, you're just. But so, Emily, I know you had this this question, which is like the obvious way to prevent banks having being able to do this is to make it just very easy and free and common for people to switch their bank and to, um, you know, just move around to wherever the product is best. And yet, that is incredibly rare in the United States. And there's this urban myth that people are more likely to get divorced than they are to change banks um which when i've tried to look into it i think turns out to be false but like it is incredibly rare for people to change banks and can you explain to me why that's so rare when people are broadly so unhappy with their banks is it just because they're convinced that all banks are terrible yeah i i don't know that i have a full answer but i think a big part of it is just that so many things are tied into our bank accounts. Yeah. I think it's become a lot harder to change banks than it was, you know, 20 years ago. So I, I, I as someone who recently changed banks, I can, um, I can attest to this. It basically took me a year to disentangle my old bank account from all of the random direct debits and, you know, people, you know, payments coming in and payments going out and stuff. It's in, insanely difficult, way harder than it should be. Now, I just want to say that like, as a, as a good European, in many European countries, it is incredibly easy to just port all of that over to a new bank. Um, you know, you don't need to go up, you know, manually change your bank account information at every single, you know, credit card and employer and 1099 that you, you know, pay, pay that, that you have, you can just change your bank account and just say like all of the stuff that used to go to that that bank account is now going to this bank account a different bank and it just happens automatically by technology um that presumably the federal reserve could mandate some kind of open bank open banking architecture in the united states that would make that possible here and they're just too captured by the banking industry to ever do that 
Yeah, I think the CFPB has been looking at these issues, um, but they haven't really come out with anything. I don't have a great explanation for for why it hasn't happened. Uh, industry capture. Yeah, it's partly industry capture, but I think I have uh, another good reason, which is that in every country where I've seen this kind of innovation, and it's one of those few genuinely good financial innovations, it has been driven by the central bank. You know, the, the central bank of Sweden will say, this is what we're doing. And then all the banks need to do it because the central bank is the, is the main bank regulator. In the United States, there isn't a central bank, weirdly enough. There are 12 central banks. We have 12 different Federal Reserve banks dotted around the country. And then we have a board of governors of the, of, of the central bank that sits in Washington. And it's really not obvious where this kind of mandate would come from. Like the Kansas City Fed has done a lot of work on like instant payments, say. And that's all great, but they only have jurisdiction over that little bit of America. And what we're talking about here is by its nature a nationwide change. And none of the American central banks, of which there are 12, really has a mandate to make nationwide change. Instant payments are actually an interesting sort of analog or analogy there. The Fed is finally rolling out an instant payment system, I think in May, right? And it took seven or eight years, something like that, maybe even longer, to sort of bring everyone under under the tent to get that done. There was a lot of opposition from the banking industry as well. But, you know, other countries, um, many other countries have had real-time payments uh, through a central bank for a very long time. So what will that look like when it when it gets when it goes into effect? Yeah, essentially, you know, a lot of payments that get made today between banks run on what's called the automated clearinghouse network um, or ACH network, which is you know decades old and uh, takes several days. You know, in most cases, the the clearinghouse, which is a you know a company owned by the big banks started a real-time payments network a few years ago, and now the Fed is um, starting its own, which will compete with it. And uh, there are going to probably be lots of different use cases, um, B2B payments, um, you know, B2C payments, uh, payments from like an insurance company to a consumer, payments from a consumer to a business. And, uh, you know, there's also the possibility that it will become a big sort of consumer to consumer way to pay, which would sort of, you know, compete with the likes of Zelle and Venmo. Yes, Zelle is Zelle is an interesting one because it's it's the bank's attempt to basically or it was the bank's attempt to kind of cut this off at the bus and say, we already have Zelle, so you got you guys at the Fed don't need to compete with us with an instant payment system. Um but Zelle is, you know, you need to sign up for it. It's kind of clunky. No one likes it. Um and you still have enormous numbers of people who use some even more clunky system, which involves having to sort of seed a completely separate wallet, whether it's your like Apple Cash wallet or your Venmo wallet or your um, Cash App wallet, where you need to put money into like a whole different account in order to be able to send money from one person to another person, which again, like as a European just seems completely insane to me. No, I have my bank account. I want money. If someone pays me, I want that money to come into my bank account. If I'm paying someone else, I want that money to go into their bank account. I don't need it to go into their Venmo account. And then they need to 
take the money out of their Venmo account and put it into their bank account. That's insane. Right, right. It is. And uh, to try to answer Emily's question, the this is going to be sort of think of the the Fed's network as sort of an underlying architecture for real time payments that applications will get built on top of. Do, do you think that Venmo and PayPal and Cash App and all of those, are, their days are numbered and that people are going to migrate off them back to just, I have a bank account. Why do I need one of these things? I, I really don't know. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of out of touch with, you know, the the the, the average Cash App user, I think, the average um, Venmo user, perhaps. I, I think people, well, there are big network effects at this point, you know, built into those ecosystems. I think some people like the social aspects of them. What do you think? The hopeful part of me says that like they will ultimately re-architect themselves to live on top of those fed instant payment layers but like that's their profits like up in smoke right the the way they make money is if i have a 600 dollar balance in my venmo account that that's like a free loan from me to paypal which owns venmo and they make lots of money on that float if if that money is sitting in my bank account rather than at PayPal, then that's all of their profits. So they're not going to willingly just like let me keep that money in my bank account rather than in my Venmo account. They're going to make it hard for me. So it's going to be it's going to be a, a real fight for consumer habits. I think in a high interest rate world, maybe the calculus changes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have cash sitting in Ven- at Venmo, you're not getting any interest on it, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to be worrying to those to those apps, even without Federal Reserve instant payments coming along. Like, there's more incentive than ever to switch banks to get out of Venmo to get out of anywhere where they're not where you're not getting interest on your cash right now. Right. But, I mean, do 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 a lot of do people have a lot of money in their Venmo accounts? I, I guess I maybe not. some do, and and. Uh, you know, or just cumulatively, it adds up to something significant for PayPal. Well, a, ca- a cash app, like that, you're really pushing it as this is your bank account, you know, just use this as your bank account, we'll give you a debit card, you can use to spend the money out of it, you can pay your paycheck into it. Um, and and like, at that point, yeah, it becomes your bank account, you don't even need a bank account anymore. Maybe this is a good point, actually, for us to have a quick break and then come back and ask you about Square slash Cash App and all of the other neobanks and whether they've really made a difference to a banking industry that doesn't seem to have changed very much over the past few decades. Some ads and then more Slate Money after these. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So one of the biggest headlines that has been crossing the wires and the newspapers over the past few months is the insane amounts of money that Goldman Sachs has managed to lose trying to build up a consumer bank called Marcus, which is now, you know, shrunk down to a, a fraction of, of what they, their, their original ambitions. Um, Cash App seems to be doing quite well. There's a million other neobanks like Varo and Chime and Aspiration and Dave, and they're all basically offering the same product, which is, We'll give you a checking account. You can pay your your salary into it. We'll give you a debit card. There are no fees. That's about it. They're they're more or less interchangeable in a bunch of different ways. And the really big banks in America, Citibank, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, are still the really big banks in America. And there's absolutely no sign that I can see that they are being really disrupted by all of these upstarts. So... Is the has has the great promise of a revolution in banking just signally failed to happen? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I, I don't think the big banks are are feeling threatened by these neo banks. Um, as, as you said, they all offer fairly similar products, which have limited revenue potential. Frankly, um, they make money from debit interchange fees, um, which is just not really enough to build and sustain a robust business. And, you know, they've been looking for ways to start offering more loans and make money that way, but they've run into a number of different hurdles. I think the Goldman Sachs Marcus thing, I don't know the complexities of why they couldn't pull it off, but my quibble is a marketing one. Like if you're Goldman Sachs and you want to start a product for the masses and you're Goldman Sachs, just call it Goldman Sachs. Well, Everyone knows your brand. That's what they did on their main <laughs> consumer product, which is the Apple Card, right? The Marcus brand doesn't appear on the Apple Card. It says Goldman Sachs. And I feel like the Apple Card has been a little bit of a damp squib, you know? Like, it came out with great fanfare, and maybe people are using it. But I've, I've seen figures saying that Goldman Sachs has been losing a billion dollars a year on this credit card. And it's like, how on earth do you contrive to lose a billion dollars a year on a credit card? Those things are licenses to print money. Yeah, I'm I'm confused. If you could shed some light on why Goldman is failing to do this basic stuff, I would be interested to know. You know, Apple just had a lot of leverage um, as they were negotiating a contract with a credit card issuer. Yeah, I I think they did force 
Goldman to provide a level of like customer support that you don't normally find in like subprime credit cards. And they forced it to be a subprime credit card. Like they were like, you need to offer some kind of credit to everyone who applies. You can't just reject people or you can only reject a few, a, a small number of people. But then I think that the really big losses were basically just in terms of technology expenditure, right? The, the someone high up in the org chart in, in um, Goldman Sachs decided that the Marcus technology stack needed to be integrated into the Goldman Sachs you know, mothership technology stack. And if you just make that kind of a decision, then you can burn through a couple billion dollars in no time. Yeah, and that's leaving aside the, the, the cost of building the original Marcus technology stack, which was pretty su- substantial. I think um, this ties in kind of with the neobanks. You know, the Goldman and the neobanks, one of the things that they were touting for some period of time was that, you know, we are going to have a competitive advantage over the, uh, the the big legacy banks because we don't have these systems that have been cobbled together over the course of decades through mergers and um, you know, it all relies on this technology that's from the 1970s. Like we, we have this, you know, modern brand new technology stack that's going to give us an advantage in the market. My sense is that there may be some advantage that the Goldman and, and the neobanks have in that regard, but it, it was not as big as maybe they hoped it would be. And well, I mean, it was it was clearly difficult enough for them to try and put it together that to this day, they don't have a checking account, which you'd think if you're opening up a basic consumer-facing bank, that's like kind of the first thing that you want to have. Yes. They don't, and they're not going to. They've, they've said that they're they're scrapping the checking account entirely at this point. Um, the, it's, it's, it's all very fluid, and it seems like, you know, the whole thing could be sold off relatively soon. If they sold it, who would buy it? I think the speculation is that you know one of the credit card issuers might might be interested in buying at least at least the credit card parts of the business. Those seem like the most obvious uh, potential buyers. For me, the obvious buyer, and this goes back to the weird regulatory mishugas to use a word that Emily loves that we have in the United States, would be Walmart. Right? Walmart has won, is is a banking superpower in Mexico. Walmart is very good at banking. People go to Walmart all the time. Um, is And Walmart has wanted to be a bank in America for, for decades. And regulators have not allowed Walmart to become a bank for, for just as many decades because they say that if you're a bank, that has to be your, you have to be a bank. You can't be a supermarket with like a bank on the side. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, as, interestingly, the former head of Marcus left a few years ago to to go to Walmart to build a consumer banking business there. Um, I, I don't I think it's still sort of unclear what their ambitions are with what they're going to do with that business. But they have uh, a connection to uh, uh, the average American um, in a way that Goldman Sachs never did and never will. So yeah, let's move on to that other grand part of many Americans' childhoods, how they grew up, this beloved institution with a stagecoach called Wells Fargo. For years, there's been this steady drumbeat of like scandal after scandal at Wells Fargo and 
how they were operating. You just came out with this massive series um, looking into what happened there. What's what's the what's the TLDR here? Like what what went wrong? And, and like in in this world where the big banks are seemingly completely entrenched and nothing can shake them off their pedestal, like why did they feel se- seemingly feel the need to be so aggressive and and cut so many corners? Before we talk about it some more, can we just explain? Not everyone will remember the fake account scandal from Wells Fargo. So basically. Uh, Wells Fargo was opening up bank accounts and credit card accounts and debit cards for people without the people knowing it or opening them up on behalf of their family members and friends, fake debit cards. And sometimes people would get charged fees on cards they didn't even know that they had. And this was on the scale of like millions of people. It was outrageous. I think that what's fascinating about the sort of phony account scandal to me is how did this spiral into this massive, you know, multi-year situation that's shaved tens and tens and tens of billions off the company's market cap. I think that they were very arrogant, hubristic, and um, they had kind of drawn the lesson coming out of the financial crisis where they were kind of the golden bank, that they were a bit untouchable, that any any problems they run in, ran into would just be a relatively small fine, a cost of doing business. And what happened was this 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 fake account scandal um, sort of resonated with politicians and pu- the public in a way that no one really anticipated. Became really a, a large, a huge story for a, a, a few a few months that sort of broke through into the mainstream. And I think the the regulators at that point sort of felt like they had egg on their faces um, that they. Um, wanted to sort of fight back against the perception that they had been too cozy with with Wells Fargo uh, for a long time. And they really started sort of turning over stones and finding a lot of unpleasantness. And, and you know, uh, s- six years later, Wells Fargo has this asset cap that they've been operating under for five years. Um, no end in sight. And, um, you know, so one thing I've been curious about is why did this scandal, this fake account scandal, which again, I wrote that big series about recently, um, why did it resonate with people, with, with the public in a way that um, other banking scandals have not? I mean, I, I think if you ask the average person what the, you know, uh, tell me about the London whale scandal, you, you'd get a, a lot of blank stares, but this scandal, this scandal really resonated. Don't you think part of it is because the average consumer can imagine being a, a victim of this? They can imagine having Wells Fargo set up fake accounts for them. And to Elizabeth's point, and I think this is actually a very interesting tension here. It is very easy to imagine, like, what the hell? A bank opens up some account in, in my name. They start charging me fees on that account. I wind up paying them a whole bunch of money. Um, and there's nothing that it, I can barely even find out about it until I weirdly like, maybe notice something in the statement. And intuitively, I think that's like a kind of scary thing because the number one product that banks sell is trust. They are a trustworthy place for you to keep your money and 
if you look at the architecture of banks, you know, a lot of them are in big, solid stone buildings with columns on the front. And they're like, you know, we are a safe place. And that kind of sense of trust and safety is completely at the bedrock of of most large banks. And the idea that they would do something like rip you off and, and, and open up an account in your name without your knowledge and siphon off fees, it really undercuts that entire narrative. The interesting thing to me is that that wasn't really the incentive here. They weren't trying to siphon off fees from customers by opening up fake accounts in their names. Most customers, like nearly everyone who had a fake account opened up in their name, had no fees charged whatsoever. There were a few exceptions. Um, but mostly what this was, was it was just a function of the incentive structure for the salespeople at Wells Fargo, who like they would get extra commissions and bonuses if they opened up extra products for customers. And they just wanted to get those extra commissions and bonuses and their, sa- and their managers wanted to you know report lots of great account opening figures to the hires up. And it was like this internal incentives issue which was the cause of the problem and the problem and the actual harm done to consumers well non-zero was i think relatively small in the grand scheme of things i i would quibble with just one thing you said there felix which is it really wasn't about getting commissions and bonuses for most of these low-level people it was about avoiding getting fired they were worried about losing their job yeah um but but to to your bigger point i i completely agree um i i think that this was really more of a a labor scandal um you know the big the true victims were the the employees not the consumers although as you said there were you know some consumers who paid some additional fees that they shouldn't have paid but these low-level workers um many of them did lose their jobs you know, others sort of suffered for years through these um, sort of atrocious working conditions um, in which they were being sort of pressured to use these uh, shady sales tactics. Every, everyone at the everyone at the bottom of the bank, at the bottom of the retail bank, suffered in a lot of different ways. One thing someone said to me recently, which I hadn't really thought about, was is a sort of alternative theory for why this this scandal resonated. Was no one at the top of the bank lost their job? everyone at the bottom of the bank did, you know, obviously there have been some consequences for some of the people at the top. A lot of the top executives are gone. They, there were clawbacks in some cases, some of them have had to pay multi-million dollar fines, but even those people at the top, those top executives are, are still doing pretty well. I think in most cases, no one went to jail. No one went to jail. But I want to ask you as well, like to what degree was this like the mother of all regulatory fuck-ups. Like every single major bank has the OCC, the FDIC, and any number of other alphabet soup of regulators, not just like up in its ship, but literally on site, physically inhabiting offices in the bank, making sure they are looking at what is going on there and they're comfortable with what is going on there. How on earth did they miss this? Well, yeah, I think to answer your question, it's the... It's the mother of all regulatory fuckups. They didn't really miss it. You know, they, they knew a lot, but they didn't do much about it. They didn't, you know, really hold Wells Fargo accountable for it. And 
the way it played out, the way the story played out um, is actually really interesting in retrospect. You know, it was there was a tip to an L.A. Times reporter in 2013 by one of these low level employees who got fired, which led to like a short article in the L.A. Times in, in 2013. Then there was a kind of a follow up article by the same reporter, Scott Record, a couple months later, that sort of, you know, showed this was a bigger a bigger issue. And that got the attention of a local prosecutor here in Los Angeles, where I live, um, you know, and 18 months after that, his office filed a lawsuit against Wells Fargo. It was only at that point that the regulators really woke up and started doing stuff. And, you know, I think at that point they probably saw this was out of their control. They couldn't, you know, uh, there were other, you know, parties that had some power that were digging into this and the regulators realized that they needed to probably start doing something themselves. It's such a weird scandal when I I was reading your your series. There's no like I mean the reason you explained there are these perverse incentives that force really low-level workers to open up a bunch of fake accounts to keep their jobs, but it wasn't like it wasn't some intentional scam or manipulation or whatever the London whale was, which I swear I've been, ex- I know what it was. And then it <laughs> flies out of my head the next day, but like, there's nothing clever or strategic about it. It's just like this, like messy, bad management, bad culture scandal. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that there's no question that there was very little focus on consumer protection prior to the formation of the CFPB. And uh, the, these regulators were looking at all of this through the lens of, you know, what they call safety and soundness, which is essentially ensuring that the bank remains profitable. Um, No one at the bank or in the regulatory agencies foresaw the possibility that this scandal would turn into something that would would undermine Wells Fargo's profitability in in, uh, serious ways. Mainly because they need to pay out $10 billion in fines. Right. And, you know, they were forced by the regulators to overhaul their systems, their risk management and all, all kinds of internal controls and in, in major ways, which are still ongoing and have cost uh, enormous, enormous amounts of money. Such an amazing scandal. There's one part of your article where they're talking about how the low level workers are getting fired because they're they're making up these bank accounts and debit cards or whatever. And the executives around the table, they're instinct, what they wanted to do to solve the problem was like, not fire them as much. <laughs> right. right. I mean, at it's least they crazy. wouldn't have got fired. Like, it's like, it's Pareto optimal, right? Like, if, if people are going to be making up <laughs> accounts anyway, at least don't fire them for the things you're forcing them to do. Yeah, they're like, this is okay. It's okay to make up accounts. What's not okay is to fire people for it. And you're kind of yeah. like, that does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so we need some ads, but we'll be straight back. We should have a numbers round, but let's start with Elizabeth. Do you have a number? Sure. Uh, my number is 50, and it's a percentage, or it's not an exact percentage, over 50%, and that's the gains in the number of corporate work phone accounts for Verizon and Charter last year, because apparently now uh, employers are worried about security a little bit more because of TikTok and things like that, and they want to cut off employee access to certain apps. So we're going back to what I think of as the the late 90s, early aughts 
period where everybody walked around with a phone and a BlackBerry. And now we're back to the, you know, two phones per employee. That's great. I really don't like how employers now are like, just use your own phone and and we'll pay for some of it. Like, what is that? No, I want you to pay for <laughs> the phone I'm using for work. Like, why is that so crazy? I like this. Yeah, it's like, who who is ever going to get around to itemizing their international phone calls and billing them for right. their company? No one ever does that. And then also you're using your personal device for work stuff and it's all mingled up. That right. can't and be then good you can, for anyone's privacy. And then privacy. it can all get subpoenaed and your work yeah. can be like, yeah, it's yeah. Why it's is this a thing? Let's know. go back to, have, give me my BlackBerry back. <laughs> I want a BlackBerry. <laughs> <laughs> I miss my BlackBerry. <laughs> yeah. My number is 4.5 million which is the number of dollars that Dan Snyder, who's the off- owner of the Washington Commanders football, that American football team, charged the Washington Commanders football team for the privilege of having their logo on his private jet. <laughs> <laughs> what? This is why he, he's rich and I'm not. Exactly. He, like, this is a bit like Adam Newman charging, you know, we work for the right to the we copyright or whatever yeah he he painted the logo of his football team on his private jet which normally is the payment goes the other way right like when JetBlue had a new york jets livery that was because JetBlue was paying the new york jets not because the new york jets were paying JetBlue. but in this case dan snyder paints the washington commander's logo on his private jet and then he's like well that's free advertising for you so pay me four and a half million dollars but Amazing. he owns them so well, he's he, owned, he owned most it's like a trump them. move He owned most of them, but they were minority investors. And the minority investors were like, why are we paying you millions of dollars for having the logo on your private jet? Um, Emily. My number is 20. That is about the number of years a man who lives in Connecticut named Joseph DeRuvo Jr. has not been wearing shoes. There, I bet Elizabeth knows this. There was a feature article by Catherine Rossman, who's a wonderful <clears throat> New York Times reporter in the New York Times. It's at least 2,000 words, and it is about this guy, Joseph, who doesn't wear shoes and lives in Connecticut. <laughs> well, I, I don't know what you to say. To ex- um, he had bunions, and he was like, you know what? Shoes hurt me, and I'm done with them. Fuck shoes. I mean, it makes it a lot easier when you're going through security checks at the airport right (laughs) yes yes though that was not the reason but it is a benefit so does he get onto planes without shoes interestingly the piece though it is long does not mention his plane travel he goes into stores without shoes and apparently in connecticut that's okay which i didn't realize and i saw someone recently at the supermarket without shoes and i was like what the hell is happening in this in this country. No, I, I wasn't like that. But I kind of was a little because it was February. Um. <laughs> because, so in the winter, when, you, when, when there's like loads of snow on the ground, he just goes out anyway without any shoes on. Yes. Yes. And in the summer when it's like real hot, he says he has to, in the summer, it gets even trickier. He has to like stay on the grass. You know, he can't be running in the streets and stuff because he runs. Does he wear again, socks though? Shoes. Is, or is he just? Elizabeth, No. <laughs> he said he carries he carries sandals in his car like if he's out to dinner with friends because he doesn't want to like disrupt the meal if he has to get kicked out so he has like a backup sandals for those occasions but that's it amazing uh kevin bring us home what's your number 
My number is 18 million. Um, to bring it back to Wells Fargo, um, 18 million was the number of uh, uh, accounts opened at Wells Fargo over like a 14 year period with zero customer initiated transactions, meaning they were opened in the name of a customer, but the customer never made a transaction. That was about 10% of all checking and savings accounts opened at Wells Fargo uh, during that period of time. 10%? That's crazy. Wow. Well, but, but I feel like if, I, if I'm a manager, I'm like 10%. This isn't up and to the right. I want it to be 90%. <laughs> 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 Turns out they had no customers. Why Why do we need custom, real customers when we can have fake ones? Oh, wait. <laughs> something, something revenues. But yeah, seriously. Um, I think that's it for Slate Money this week. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. And thanks, Anna, for producing. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment. There's a question I want to ask Kevin about the asset side of bank balance sheets. Not the liabilities, which is the deposits, but the assets, which is their loans and bonds and things. Um, we're going to cover that in Slate Plus. But other than that, thanks for listening. And we will be back next week with more Slate Money. Money.